46. I hope, I hope you had a chance to read it. If you haven't had a chance to read Psalm 46, my guess is uh, you've heard it before. Okay? This is kind of the classic Lutheran psalm. Um, this is the one that Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, was sort of based on. Anybody know the title in German? Ein Festeberg ist unser Gott. Yeah, that's right. Can anybody sing it in German? Someone give it a try. Come on now. Anybody learn it in German? I don't know what the appeal, well, I shouldn't, I was going to say, I don't know what the, pe- the appeal of, I took German for like seven years and it just doesn't get me going. Um, but anyways, this was the hymn, uh, you know, from which Luther then wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So to a certain extent, it appears to be the battle cry of the Missouri Synod. It's always struck me that most Missouri Synod churches don't stand for the gospel. I shouldn't say most, some don't, but they all stand when they sing, A Mighty Fortress. Isn't that, uh, that is so odd to me. So we sing, I, I was, it's like the Lutheran fight song, you know, you stand to sing it. I'm not, believe me, I'm not opposed to standing. It's just an odd set of circumstances where you stand for that, but some don't stand for the gospel. Um, it's the same thing with, have you ever seen at churches where people bring up the money and the pastor then takes it and holds it to the altar and bows? You ever seen that? Or he, the worst is when he elevates it. Now they don't elevate the, host at the Eucharist, but they do elevate the money. And what's so strange is, in the scriptures, money is called filthy mammon. So we come to the altar and some pastor holds up the money, but, you know, heaven forbid you hold up the host. That's always an odd thing. Um, But anyways, I digress, Uh, Psalm 46 is the great Luther psalm and and Lutheran psalm as well. Uh, Just a reminder, though, as as we walk through the psalms, I think it's important to remember that all the psalms are utterly Christological. And by that I mean uh, they're spoken first by Christ and then by you. Or first by Christ and then by David and then by you. They are Christ's psalms first, not ours. Uh, And so to pray the psalms properly is to pray them in Christ. Okay. Now what do you think I mean by praying them in Christ? What does that mean? It's just what I suspected. What does it mean to pray in Christ? What does it mean to live in Christ? Bueller? Good. So that would be Christ in you. Okay? So she said, Maddie said, Christ in your heart, Christ guiding you, Christ leading you. That's good. How else do you pray in Christ? Or how else do you live in Christ? Think baptismally here. Yeah, could be. Keep going though. How do you where do you, how do you live in Christ? Romans 6. I have been baptized. Yeah, but now that's all Christ in you. I'm talking you in Christ. Okay? So there's a two there's a two-way action in baptism. The first action is and there, and these aren't, you know, sort of in any order. This is just two ways the Lord works. One is he comes inside of you, so Maddie, he now dwells inside of you. The other is you now dwell in Christ, right? So in Galatians, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then in, uh, in Romans, Paul says, I have been baptized into Christ. Okay? This, I always do this with the eighth grader, so let's see if you like it. Okay, now, am I out or in right now? I'm in. Okay? Am I out or in? Out, okay? Now, what's that? I know. See, I can always I always expect you to say something, right? I'm out and now I'm in. Now when you're a kid, how many of you have pools? Raise your hand. You have a pool? You have a pool? How come you've never invited us over for a pool party? I was expecting like Maddie to have a pool or the cows to have, but the coals a pool? That's exactly right. Okay, now, does your, do your kids ever say, can we go in the pool? Yeah. Is that right or wrong grammatically? Wrong, right? You're in the pool or you're out of the pool. But if you want to get in the pool, you have to get into the pool. Into is a preposition of motion. You move, right? My wife's a language arts teacher. By the way, well, five love languages, this should be the sixth for her. I mean, if I just talk this way and it's like, I love you so much. Okay, so I'm out, and I'm in. 
Right now, I'm moving into the church, okay? So in baptism, there's a preposition of motion. You're outside of Christ, and now you are in Christ. Why? Because you've been moved out into Christ. So, so let's, let's think. It's very easy for us to think about Christ lives in me, right? That's sort of, that's sort of if, you're, if you were eclectic this morning and you said, tell me what it means to be a Christian, most people would say Christ lives in me. But there's, there's an additional sort of Lutheran bit, which is you live in Christ. Okay? And I think we often forget that. It's not just that Christ warms your heart. It's that you actually reside in the flesh of Jesus. I mean, that's a dramatically different way of living life. Okay? Not just Christ in you. It's you in Christ. So you live in his flesh. And I'm not talking some abstract Jesus like, isn't it great? I'm in Christ. I mean physically. You know, if he was here walking around and you could touch him, you could say, I live inside of that. So now given that, what does it mean to pray in Christ? Yeah. Yes, now we're getting closer. Christ's words on your tongue because you live in Christ. To pray in Christ simply means you pray from the depths of Christ's flesh, from where you live. Okay? So you do what he does. You says what you, you says what he says. You say what he says. You do what he does. You live the life that he lives. So that's what it means to pray in Christ, which means when you think of praying the Psalms, the Psalms are not just sort of expressions of human emotion. I think that's oftentimes how we read the Psalms. Ah, oh, David's angry, David's happy, David's about to be killed, David's an adulterer. It's not just expressions of human emotion. That is part of it. But it's first and foremost an expression of your union with Jesus or of David's union with Jesus or of, if, there, if it's not David, the other psalmist's union with Jesus. Okay, That's what it means to pray the psalms. You begin by the fact that you no longer live by yourself, but you live in the flesh of Christ. Make sense? Okay, so be thinking about that. Don't just sit down and read the Psalms and say, I've had a bad day, let me find a bad Psalm. You know, or I'm really angry, let me find an anger Psalm. No, sit down and pray the Psalms as one who lives in the body of Christ, which means, frankly, all the Psalms work and apply. Okay? Psalm 46, then. Uh, let's see. You know, you can use whatever translation you've got. I've got the New English here, um, just because it's a bit more beautiful. God is our shelter and our refuge, a timely help in trouble. So we are not afraid when the earth heaves and the mountains are hurled into the sea, when its waters roar in tumult and the mountains quake before his majesty. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, which the Most High has made his holy dwelling. God is in that city. She will not be overthrown, and he will help her at the break of day. Nations are in tumult, kingdoms hurled down. When he thunders, the earth surges like the sea. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our high stronghold. Come and see what the Lord has done. The devastation he has brought upon the earth. From end to end of the earth, he stamps out war. He breaks the bow, he snaps the spear, and burns the shield in the fire. Let be then. Learn that I am God, high over the nations, high above the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Okay? What comes to mind when you hear the psalm? Just start going. What do you, what do you hear when you hear the psalm? Power? Okay, good. Yep. Yeah, this, yeah, at other time, the other Psalms we read, many of them have been sort of me with her or me with him. This one is the cosmos. There's cosmic things going on in this Psalm. Keep going, good. Power, cosmos, what else? Yep. Yeah, right. 
Right, right. Good. We're gonna let's 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 go slowly and let's get to that. What do you notice about um, who's praying this psalm? Look at the personal pronouns. It's too bad my wife's not here. This would really, I mean, she'd love me forever. We, in many of the past psalms, they've been what? I. So first person singular. And all of a sudden, the psalmist turn thing, turns things on its head, and what does it become? First person plural. So the voice of the psalm, then, is the same voice of our Father who art in heaven. Right? So it's, it's a, there's a plurality. There are multiple people praying this prayer. Who's praying this prayer? The church. Yes, the church. This is the church's prayer. You remember from Psalm 121, the very middle of the psalm was, uh, where do you find safety? In Israel. And Israel today is the church. By the way, last week, Pastor, I mean, that was a fascinating discussion. Um, where Pastor Bruza kind of, what was the psalm we read? 27, 29? 27 about the tent and the tabernacle and sort of being covered on all sides. The one thing he didn't say, um, but I think might be helpful is, remember he talked all about finding safety within the tabernacle? I mean, that was kind of the point. Do you remember what it says in John 1.14? Somebody open up to John 1.14 and read that. It's the very beginning, you know, the first gospel. What does it say? John, John 1, of course, is the great, the word became flesh. You know, he created all things, so on. And so. It's, a, it's, a, it's a recounting or a retelling of Genesis 1. But what does it say in John 1.14? Yes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the Greek word there for made his dwelling is skenes, which literally means tabernacle. Isn't that great? The, so it reads like this. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And you see then how this is carried out in sort of uh, the story of the Gospels. Remember when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens in the tabernacle? Curtain is torn in two. What happens to Jesus' side? See how it all comes together? Jesus is the tabernacle whose curtain is torn in two. So when Pastor Bruzek said, and it was brilliant, find safety in the tabernacle, it wasn't just that within the tabernacle God is present. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. God was there. Guess what? In the New Testament, God is the tabernacle because Jesus is the tabernacle. So basically what Pastor Bruzek was saying was find your safety in Christ, which is how we started today. Where do you live? In Jesus. He's your tabernacle. He's your safety. So it's not just about Jesus coming to your heart. It's about you actually being moved into the heart of Christ. Make sense? You all okay? I feel like we're going too quickly here. You okay? All right. So what we have then is a prayer of the church, first person plural. Um, and as you've said, uh, it's, uh, it appears to be a number of things, power and sort of cosmic power, and yet uh, a glimmer of hope, however small that glimmer might be. The great thing with the Lord is any hope, uh, any hope is good hope. And any peace is good peace. So there's a glimmer of peace at the end. There really are, though, two parts to the psalm. And each one ends with, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You notice that, that appears twice. It appears in verse 7 and 11. There are two parts to the psalm. Now, just let's read through. Somebody read through the first part of the psalm. Read through 1 through 7. And just what kind of picture do you get in your head? You've already said it, but I want you to hear it again. Read 1 to 7, someone. Perfect. How would you describe the first seven verses? Peace or chaos? Utter chaos. Utter chaos. And you should begin to hear in all this, and my guess is many of you did, this was a very famous psalm after what event? Do you remember a couple years back? 9-11. 
I, in fact, I even think, and I, and I could be mistaken, I even think, uh, was it Billy Graham who preached at the National Cathedral? George Bush got up at the, I mean, it was a very moving service, actually. Did he, was he the preacher? Do you remember this? I, I, I vaguely remember him. He was sort of, his health was so bad at that time even. But I think he may have preached on this text. Um, and this then, I think, even for President Bush sort of became sort of his tagline through all of this. The God, you know, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So I think right now it's very easy to see how this is true. How is this true for the psalmist? How is the, how is the cosmos in utter chaos? Well, it's true for the psalmist because he's about to be killed, right? Everybody wants to take his life. Nations are in uproar, so the kingdoms of Israel are fighting against each other. Um, and you see, even in the Old Testament, some cosmic things happening. You know, some of these, some of these waters roaring and things like that should even give you a picture of like Jonah. You know what happens with Jonah? The cosmos is in uproar, and Jonah somehow finds himself in the belly of a whale. So you see this. You really see um, in Psalm 46 a picture of what creation was before the Lord spoke, "Let there be." Right? Remember Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's just a fancy way of saying it was chaos. And what does the Lord do? He says, let there be light. How many times does he say that? Do you remember? Eugene Peterson, the best thing he said in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. How many times? Eight times. That is, I mean, here's the thing. That is, that is such a simple, a simple read on the text. He says, let there be eight times. The number eight signifies what? New creation? What'd you say? Perfection, yeah. It also signifies the number that will have no end. So seven eventually comes to an end. Eight will have no end, which means if the Lord speaks order eight times, his speaking of order will never have an end. That makes sense? He says, let there be eight times. So in creation, he brings order by speaking. But he didn't speak seven times. He spoke eight times. Which shows you, the church, that his speaking will never have an end. So how is he going to bring order here? With his voice. Keep going, Holly. He said, let there be eight times. Yep. 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 Yes, right. And then, for those of you who love Mary, I, I of course, don't have a real affinity for her. Diane. Oh, good, you weren't listening. Okay. Oh, no, good. <laughs> I know, okay, good. So, Mary, the great thing about Mary is in the Annunciation, what happens? What are her words after the angel says this is going to happen? Let it be unto me. Isn't that great? She receives the let there be of creation with her own let it be unto me. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, it's just beautiful how the Lord works this all out. You can't see it until you read all the scriptures together. All right? So the first half is utter chaos. Have, the earth heaves. I mean, the earth heaves. That's an unbelievably strong image. Mountains are hurled. Waters roar. Mountains quake. Nations are in tumult. Kingdoms are hurled down. The earth surges like the sea. <laughs> this is a picture of the end of the world. What will the end of the world be like? A mess. Doesn't sound that bad to you? That's right. Yes, things are rough, but God is there. This, it, which is the same thing that will happen at the end of the world. Things are going to be rough, but God will be there. And I said this to the joy group, so Maddie, you can answer. I don't, I don't know if you were there. That, you may have been gone that day. I said this to the joy group. When, when is the end of the world? Uh, even before that. She said, now. The crucifixion of Jesus. What happens at the crucifixion of Jesus? He's on the cross. 
darkness comes over, chaos, earthquakes, dead people come out of their graves. All the things that the psalmist is talking about in the first seven verses happen at the crucifixion of Jesus. Is the earth peaceful or chaotic when Jesus is on the cross? Utter chaos. Keep going. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's right. <clears throat> yes, he did. <laughs> well, he was loose then too. He's loose in a different way now. But it was. But even that is an act of, in a sense, it's chaotic. Can you imagine standing there watching the temple curtain being ripped in two? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but did they know that? Right. Yeah, God, yes. No, right. See, here's the thing. You, I, don't, I think this is, this is sort of the problem, not just with Lutherans, but with sort of Protestants. We read everything out of context, even Luther. You read, but even here, it's difficult to remember what actually went on at the crucifixion. We're not in that context. So we can say... God's more fully revealed than he was then. That's very true. But imagine the high priest. High priest is thinking, they're going to kill me for this. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. The, um, uh, the great hymn, The Infant Priest Was Holy Born, has one, one verse near the end where it says, uh, His unveiled presence now we see, as at the rail on bended knee. Right? That's the place. So now you get to see what the high priest didn't see because you get to see the body and the blood. But, but for them, it's utter chaos. In fact, in some sense, it returns the world to what it was before let there be. Okay? It's almost as though you could say, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep as Jesus hangs on the cross. Leslie. I know. <laughs> what do you, yeah. Well, it's like the thing with Lazarus. I mean, why, uh, how long did Lazarus live after that? I don't know. My grandmother, may her soul rest in peace, she always used to say, you know, Josh, why he said Lazarus come out? Why is that? Because if he just said come out, everybody would have come out. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Graham. I love you. <laughs> but, I mean, from the mouth of babes, you know, that, that is, uh, I mean, she was spot on. His, his word does what it says. So at the crucifixion, what's his, what's his last word on the cross? It is finished. Which means the world is finished. I mean, everything is done. This is the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine, right? That's the end of the world. And that's why when Jesus rises from the dead, he rises on not the seventh day, but the eighth day. It's the day of the new creation, and the new creation has no end. So yeah, you may see in 500 years or maybe in 500 minutes, Jesus return and say, this is the end of the world. It's not. You're in the eighth day. The eighth day never stops. You live in heaven right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's N.T. Wright. Heaven before, or life after, life after death. You live, I mean, everybody says, my, my, relative, my grandmother died. Now she has life after death. Guess what? You have life after death right now. And when you die, it'll be life after, life after death. That makes sense? Jenny, you look, you look perplexed. See yourself in, in perspective. See yourself in the flesh of Jesus. Don't think about Jen. Think about living in the flesh of Christ. Will Jesus ever die again? He died once, and now he has life after death. You're in Christ. Keep going. Okay. Louis Brighton? Yeah. 
Yep. They'll be banned? <laughs> were you scared by that or comforted by that? Yeah, okay. So that may have not been the best way to say that. Why would your Bible be gone? That might be the Lord calling right now. This might be his return. Can I answer it? Who is it the Lord? Who is it? I could get you out of the next couple days. You don't look so well. Are you sick? Note from your pastor? That's like getting a note from your doctor. All right, it's work. Yeah, okay. All right, so. Yep. Wouldn't it be great, like, if he came back today? Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Is it going to be bad because he's coming? Why? Why? <laughs> okay. Well, that that's what Louis Brighton said. Great. Okay. Well, no, I I actually wasn't here for that. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yes, I am. Well, it's not. Here's the. Yeah, this is it. I mean, this is this is why Jesus talks about the birth pains before he returns. And this is why Jesus says no one knows that day or that hour. But he kind of says carry on because it's not going to get any worse. I mean, could it get worse? Yeah, it could get worse. How could it get worse? You could lose a child. You could have a fight with your parents. You could do, I mean, there's plenty of ways life could get worse. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not like all of a sudden the world's going to be taken over by unbelievers and somehow they're going to, per- they could. But you need to see that this right now is the end of the world. Yeah. You can't, you can't read, she said, is everything in Revelation happening now? Yeah. Don't read Revelation like the Left Behind series. Yeah. It, Revelation is a picture of what's, Revelation is what's left behind. You read it? No. The point is, left behind shows you some, it's some picture of somehow, you know, I don't even, I haven't read it all, but my guess is people are taken and people are left behind. And what happens to the people who are left behind? Oh, they make the whole thing. You actually believe that? Okay. Yeah. So here's what you got to know. Yeah. Here's the thing. This is like eighth grade count. Everybody just starts talking at once. <laughs> Can't get a... it. Revelation is a vision. It, Saint John, the evangelist, is the one who sees it. So he's called Saint John the Seer. He, so he, what happens is, yes, it's a it's a it's a dream of sorts, but it's a vision of heaven. So Revelation, don't don't get bogged down in what kind of you know pain are we going to endure. You should get bogged down in the ongoing liturgy of heaven, which Revelation actually highlights. Remember, the great line in Revelation, I think it appears on All Saints Day is, uh, and I can remember actually the way, it, the reason it has such a fond place in my life is the only time I've ever heard someone preach on it was Dr. Nagel. And with his voice and hearing him say this was unbelievable. But it's got that great line, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And even there you have all this ironic talk. How do you make robes white in blood? Right? I mean, so you have all these things going on. But that is the center of revelation. Not that you're in a fight or you're going to be in a fight. It's the elder says, who are these? Sir, you know. Everybody knows in heaven. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. So what you need to see is the great tribulation is now. Why? I mean, just, and, and well, if you have to have ambassadors of reconciliation come to your church, that's evidence that the end of the world is now. Because if it, if it, it, that, that's the kind of stuff that doesn't happen, shouldn't happen in the church, right? So all of that means it's here right now. So when the Lord actually returns, it's not going to be some dreadful day. I mean, even the talk of separating sheep from goats, is that going to happen? Yeah, but is the Lord going to be out there like, you know, directing traffic and yelling at people? No. In fact, I think you're going to be surprised at how many goats there are. 
There might be fewer than you think. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see pictures of Jesus then, some of the great icons, or even if you go to like the Fort Wayne Seminary, there's a big mosaic. Jesus with, you know, a lily in one hand and a sword in another. So in his right hand is a lily, that's the resurrection, that's life. And then the sword, of course, is death. Because what happens is those who are on the left have their own sort of death. It's life by themselves forever. <laughs> And Jesus returns from what direction, do you remember? From the east. So if he were to return right now, this isn't facing east, but it's supposed to be, you'd see him before I would. <laughs> I hope it's the prayer of the church, so I'm looking too. Because if I got my back turned, you're going to be like, whoa, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, right. the psalm is in two parts. The first half is cosmic chaos. And right after he says, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, the second half is cosmic peace. You see that? It balances out. So basically, this is like in the scriptures when, when uh, St. Paul says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. The language of sin there is the language of addition. You've got two sins plus two sins plus two sins. The language of grace is in multiplication. So you can never out-sin grace. There's always more grace. Same thing here. There's always more peace than there is chaos. You'll never be out-chaosed. Peace will always win the day. Why? That's like when he says you're not going to have your Bible, you know what I'd say? Good. Because you have the Bible in flesh. Why do, you need a, why do you need the scriptures? The only reason you have the scriptures is because he's not walking around talking to you today. And have the Bible, that's okay. I got the Eucharist. When you go to heaven, you're at the supper of the Lamb. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. 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 I wonder, I wonder, yes, good point. So the point was on 9-11, you see this all the time when something dramatic happens, there are certain people who want to stop and take it all in. And there are certain people who say, let's carry on. As they say in, in England, keep calm and carry on, right? Now, why is that? Why do people want to stop and some want to carry on? My, here's my guess. The people who want to stop don't experience chaos like that on a regular basis. Or at least they don't know they do. Someone like you, who's, who's been in the church and been around, you would probably say, we got to keep working. Yeah, this is a little more, you know, it gets a, yeah. But at the end of the day, 100 years from now, you'll look back and say, there were, there were a number of days like 9-11 in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, did you have something? No, you didn't. Keep going, yeah. Well, there's a, he says there'll be a day when I come back and sort of square things up. And that's the, so, so there, there are two, you know, sort of at the end of your life, there are sort of two events for, a, for anybody. You die, and then there's a day when Christ returns and makes a new heaven and a new earth. So, you know, uh, I was just thinking about my grandmother this morning at the Eucharist when it says angels and archangels and all the comfort of heaven. Right now she's in the ground, but her soul is with Christ in the presence of Jesus. But when Christ returns, that's the great day when bodies come back with souls and suddenly now you live in a land that resembles Eden. It's better than Eden. So there's an end of your personal days. You'll go on the ground, hopefully not for a long time, but you'll go on the ground. 
Um, and then there'll be a day when Christ returns, and that sort of is the end of the world's days. And that's the day when you get your body back. Well, yeah, uh, you do theologically, but you don't, you know, well, or like, you know, time, in a time way. <laughs> but you do, theologically. With Jesus, everything is done. It's a new day. That's very confusing. I don't even know what I just said there. <laughs> Actually, I do know what I said, but I do know it's very confusing. But part of the trouble, this is why the church doesn't talk about this whole lot, because we have no idea what it really all means. All you know is, you go on the ground, your soul goes to be with Jesus. Jesus will come back and give you your body back. And then you live in a land that looks like Eden. And this is why in Isaiah they say, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Children will play with rattlesnakes. Oh, this is what I was going to tell you last week. This is, reminds me. People are most afraid of three things. We talked about fear last week. What are you afraid of? Yeah, people are most afraid of three things. They've done studies. What are the three things people are most afraid of? Darkness, falling, and snakes. Okay? A couple times. I actually said to Pastor Bruce, like, this will be a test to see whether or not they were listening. Darkness, falling, and snakes. Now, all of these have sort of beginning of the world satanic overtones. Darkness, right? That's, that's chaos. That's pre-creation. Uh, falling, what happens to Satan in Revelation 12? He fell like lightning from heaven. And snakes, when he deceives Adam and Eve, he is a snake, okay? So you have darkness, falling, and snakes, and you can see this all over, but what happens in the new Eden? Suddenly these things are redeemed. Kids play with snakes, you know? There'll be no Satan falling from heaven because it's done, and it'll be eternally light. So it's all, it's all renewed. It's all turned upside down. Okay? Rebecca. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, a mini what? Say that again. Yeah, that... What, yeah, the reason you have a church is this is not the reality. It's not like, and I hope, I hope you can track this, it's not as though the world is the reality and heaven is a picture of our reality. The presence of Christ is reality, and this is meant to be a picture of that reality. So you should live your whole life as the saints live with Christ filled with the fullness of God. And the more you live that way, I mean, this, is, this could be a challenge to you. You want Jesus to return? Live like Christ. Because the more people embody his presence and the more you come in contact with people who don't know him, the more quickly he returns. So should this be a little Eden? Yes. This should reflect the real reality, the Eden to come. How does it reflect that? You embody Christ. How do you embody Christ? You go to the Eucharist. The world. The world. And particularly the church. I mean, what happens, the reason we go to the altar on Sunday is not because we have a Eucharist, because heaven has a Eucharist. And the Lord says, do this. So there's this, this is N.T. Wright's great thing from Simply Christian. There's this, it's not as though there's heaven and there's earth. It's not as though they're one and the same, pantheism. You don't go out and look at a tree and say, oh, that's a tree in heaven. No, but these two realities, this being the greater reality, intersect. Where do they intersect? Wherever Christ is present. Where is Christ present? With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So what happens at the altar is not that you go up to heaven. That's what all the reforms say. All your evangelical friends say, I go to communion so I can ascend up to heaven with my spirit. No. Heaven, reality, drops down to you. So you are in heaven. I, I read this great thing. It was in the Wall Street Journal from two Sundays ago. We were out in New York, and I opened it up, 
about 10 pages in the first section, um, it was, a Baptist becomes an Orthodox Christian. That was the whole article. And the article, this guy said, I was a Baptist. I walked into an Orthodox church. I saw the icons. I was able to smell the incense. I saw the priest. I observed the Eucharist. And I didn't know if I was in heaven or on earth. That's the liturgy. Which is part of the reason why I just, I just gave a paper with all these evangelicals out in, out in Oak Park. Great guys, young guys. My paper was, if you want to make disciples, have the liturgy. Why? Because people today don't want what the world has to give. You shouldn't come into church and have it look like the world. Because it's not. The reality is, heaven drops down to earth. So church should look like heaven more than it looks like earth. So you wear vestments. You swing some incense every once in a while. By the way, there was a lot this morning. Ooh. Even I, I mean, I love incense, but I'm like, I, I, I was kneeling at the altar, and I could see it billowing up over my head, and I'm like, the vicar went all out today, okay? So, but that's the, that's the point, okay? And, and that should give you hope or peace, Carol, all the way through the chaos of this life, that the peaceful Eden to come is a reality now when you're in the presence of Jesus. The peaceful Eden to come drops down to earth. That makes sense? Okay. Any uh, anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And the people who are going to be terribly scared on the last day, Jen, are people who don't realize that this is chaos now. <laughs> people walk through life and say, isn't this great? I don't wake up ever and say, isn't this great? When you're in the church, it's great. When you're with your family, with Christians, it's great. But, you know, when people are being killed and the stock market plummets and whatever, that's not, that's not great. But people who are surprised are people who didn't see how bad it was here. <laughs> so observe how bad it is and realize something better is coming. St. Paul says there's a more excellent way. And that's what you're waiting for. Yeah. Yes. I, I would. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, the question was someone who's sort of going through chaos and doesn't, isn't necessarily connected to Jesus, maybe how they should be. Would this be a good psalm for them? And my answer was yes. So long as you don't say, read this because this guy was having a terrible time as well. You, you would say, read this because there's a lot going on, but at the end of the day, divine peace, you know, wins. So that would be the reason to, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Anything else? You okay? All right, keep looking then. Somebody read uh, 8 through 11, would you? Thank you. Amid it all, sort of right in the middle of the entire psalm, you have what? That was a very odd question. <laughs> there are a lot of things right in the middle of the psalm. You have a stream, a river, whose streams make glad the city of God. Isn't that unbelievable? In the midst of sort of chaos. So mountains are tumbling, and rivers are spewing, and nations are fighting. And what does it say? 
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I mean, just imagine, a river. So the mountains are being turned over, and a river survives. And, and the early church always at least read this as, as some reference to baptism. Right? Just like Psalm 23. You know, you walk beside still waters. Um, and you have all over, even in the book of Revelation, you have all these rivers coming, four rivers, right, from the ends of the earth, finding in their source the lamb, right, the lamb. So through it all, the river makes glad the city of God. Now, how does it do that? We just read it. Come and see what the Lord has done, the devastations he has brought upon the earth. You should be thinking crucifixion here. From end to end of the earth, he stamps out war. I mean, that's like, he stamps it out. That's like when it says, the serpent will bite his heel and he will crush its head. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. It's like he does this with, with it doesn't take any, any, you know, there's no struggle in this. And burns the shield in the fire. And as this one says, let be then. You know, just don't worry. Relax. Learn that I am God. High over the nations, high above earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, the most interesting thing is when it says the Lord of hosts is with us, um, the word used there for with us is uh, the same word in the New Testament that's used for Emmanuel. Isn't that interesting? It's Emmanuel. In Hebrew, it's Emmanuel. So the Lord of hosts is with us, Emmanuel. That's the Hebrew word, which means you should always be seeing or overtones of uh, not overtones, explicit references to Jesus here. How is God with you? Emmanuel. Who's Emmanuel? The person of Christ. You remember uh, Matthew's gospel begins, chapter 1, this is unbelievable, begins in chapter 1 by, by, uh, by uh, the angel saying, you will call him Emmanuel, that is God with us. And then Matthew chapter 28 ends by Jesus saying, remember Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you always. So Matthew 1 begins by saying, his name is Emmanuel because he'll be with you. And it ends by saying, lo, I am with you always. So, Je so the point of Matthew's gospel is, Jesus is always with you. And the point of the psalm is, cosmic peace comes by Emmanuel who is with you. That's all there is here. I mean, at the end of the day, it is all about Jesus. Okay? How does peace come? Christ. And what you should be thinking is not just Jesus in my heart. How do I get peace? I've got to touch the flesh of Jesus. How do I touch the flesh of Jesus? Ding, ding, ding. Okay? Yeah, it was, uh, now see, um, hmm. what did, did Jacob's name get changed to Israel? Yeah, I think, remember Jacob receives a new name, he receives the name Israel, and I think partly he's, a ref, he's referencing the church, so the God, you could read that as the God of Israel, or the God of the church, <laughs> yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, good. So I wish I had, see, the trouble was we don't have a whiteboard. Um, The real question is, what does it mean that things work out? Well, it's like, it's, 
Yep. Well, yes, but you, you have to ask if, in the Lord's eyes, if that means it's working out. It's like, is it Bernard of Clairvaux who says when you ask for something in your prayers, he says yes or something better? Now, the, the question is always, well, if I die of cancer, is that something better? Yeah, maybe it is. So your something better is different than the Lord's. Your working out is different than the Lord's working out. But I, <clears throat> I think you're right. I think what she's referencing is, is the Eden to come. There is a time when things will work out. But in this life, it may not. I agree, and for some people that's more difficult than others. But partly it, it is it is perspective, and, and I mean, maybe not even perspective. It's a way. Well, it is. It's a way of viewing the world. The interesting thing is, if you live in Christ, so imagine, you know, imagine that it's not that someone else's flesh is over you. The, I thought, well, never. Hmm. The Father. I thought you were falling down. I was worried. I was going to come over and you know, tell someone else to help you up because we don't have insurance for that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I, never mind. Beth understands. <laughs> so, and if she doesn't, she's at least being kind enough to chuckle. <laughs> so, yes, yes, right, okay. So when the father sees you, his perspective is what? Who does he see? He sees Christ. You're covered in Jesus because you live in his body. That's the point. The father only has how many sons? One son, Okay. So the entire church is gathered into the body of Christ. And when he sees his son, or when he sees you, he sees his son. So that's his perspective. But at the same time, if you're in the flesh of Christ and you're looking out through his eyes, your perspective is his perspective. Make sense? You're looking out through the eyes of Jesus. It's almost like you have goggles on, you know? And all you can see is what Jesus sees. It's like at the altar when I hold the host up and look through it to say, peace be with you. Why do I do that? Not because I don't want to see you, but because I want to see you through the flesh of Christ. That is the flesh of Jesus at that moment. So your perspective is the perspective of Christ. And Christ's perspective is always, this is going to work out. So you're right. By yourself, on your own, perspectives don't really matter because it may not work out in this life. But if your perspective is from within the flesh of Christ, then that perspective always works out. Because what Christ sees is, not that the world's going to hell, he's seen, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay? You okay with that? All right. Yeah, yes, yep, agreed. Well, why do you think it, it's so moving for people to, especially for Christians, to go to places like Africa and see people that don't eat for days? Uh, and I know you are, but I, I'm taking, yeah. Yep. I told you that, uh, uh, yeah, hmm. well, it is sad, uh, but you need to see the upside-downness of what Jesus does or the making wrongs rightness of what Jesus does. I mean, part of the reason, I, I, and I use this in the paper, and I think I've said it to you, you know, there's this young girl who was sort of self-conscious, and she went to Lourdes, this, you know, this sort of Catholic pilgrimage place. Not because she was ill. She went there because she wanted to see the people who were ill. People flocked there. And she, you know, beheld physically these dying people and came back and said, that's beauty. Not what's on a magazine. That's beauty. Now, why is that? It's because her perspective was from within the flesh of Jesus. 
It's the same thing with going to Africa. It's the same thing with walking out here and seeing a dying world. It is sad, and at the same time, what you see is Jesus is making wrongs right. There's potential. These are God's beloved. Even unbelie- I mean, don't, don't waste your time banging on unbelievers. Waste your time trying to bring unbelievers in contact with Christ. Right? That's how, you know, so that's part of our issue. Part of our issue is, I think part of our issue is we live in a community where, as you just said, we can't ever admit anything's wrong. <laughs> and if you do, it's always someone else. Partly, look at how screwed up your own life is. Not you, but all of us. Yeah, well, okay, you said it, I didn't. Look at how screwed up your own life is, and then at the same time realize that even if you own a million-dollar home in Wheaton, your life is screwed up, and the world is screwed up. And then see that as opportunity to bring the gospel of hope, not by preaching to people, by going out and living the life that Christ has called you to live. I mean, evangelism and, and showing the good news, that is very easy. Live the Christian life. I, who is it? St. Francis, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. We always kind of throw that around like, oh, isn't that cute? But he was right. So, so you've got to see that as potential. Not as sad. It is sad. But it's only sad when you see that there's no hope. Um, yeah. Yep. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Right. And, and let me just <clears throat> Yeah, let me make a pa- yeah, let me make a pastoral plea too, because here's what I've I've observed being you know in New York multiple times now, but especially this last time. The difficult and I in fact I just talked. There's a young college or a high school pastor from College Church who's now out in Oak Park. This is where I met these guys, and he he had the same observation. The difficulty for me or for us is to pastor people who have a veneer. And, and not because those people are bad people. The difficulty is they're never willing to admit that something's wrong. So you're either forcing them to be pastored or you're trying to break down a veneer. And either way, that's a loser's game. The reason the bishop in New York was so loved, not even loved, it's not about being loved. The reason he was such a faithful pastor is because there was no veneer. I mean, making sports teams, these kids, these kids can barely go to school. So partly, he can be pastor because the walls have been broken down. As I said in in Bible study on Sunday, they go to him like a father because that's all they've got. Many of them don't have fathers. Here, that is like, I mean, many of you have issues that probably could use some pastoral care. Some of them I know, some of them I don't know. But the difficulty is our willingness to admit that we have a problem. And partly what that does is it's a false sense of peace. It doesn't acknowledge the first seven verses of Psalm 46 that life is hell. That, yeah, you may live in Wheaton and your marriage may be screwed up, or you may not have any money, or maybe you're, what? I mean, pick your thing. But part of it is admitting, I have a veneer, boom, it's gone. Here's who I am. Wheaton people have a very, and and again, I'm not banging on Wheaton people. I'm just, because I live here. I know how, I mean, I know what it's like. It's very difficult to pastor. That probably, that's very true. Yep. It isn't funny when you step back and then look at it and say, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me go back here and then I'll come to you. Rebecca, did you have something? It's very difficult to receive love. Not impossible. Because if love is divine, if love is Jesus, there's no impossibility. But it becomes more difficult. In or out of community. It's like it's like with anything else with the Lord, get out of the way. Your veneer is your way of standing in the way. So when people drop the veneer and get out of the way and say, I got nothing, 
This is Kleinig. The reason you sing the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, is because you come as beggars to the altar. That's Luther. He, on his deathbed, they find a paper in his pocket that says, we are beggars, this is true. So when you finally realize you're a beggar, and I don't mean sort of pietistic Wheaton beggar, like, oh, I really need God's grace. Like, you have nothing. You have nothing. And everything you have is a gift. Until you realize that, it's very difficult to, to receive love, both from fellow people, from pastors, and from the Lord. Because what the Lord says is drop the veneer. Not you, everybody. Yeah. I think, what, I think that's actually very helpful. I think what you're saying is um, folks who live in a place like Wheaton, not just Wheaton, a place like, because there are many places like this. Yeah, right. People that live in a place like this have great potential to sort of be stewards of the mysteries of God. And I don't mean in a, in a sort of sacramental sense. What I mean is think about how great the world would be if people who had the resources to do some good drop the veneer, say I'm a beggar, be loved, and then use the great blessings of their resources to help other people experience the same love. I mean, that would be a dramatically different kind of world. But partly, we're not even at the point of dropping the veneer. And again, it's not just here. It's here and all over the place. But partly, just think about the potential. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Not, not how you all should be dropping the veneer. You should. But then from there, what great potential you have. This is Carol's thing about seeing it as hopeful or peaceful instead of chaotic. You are the type of folks that can make that happen. Not all of you, but many of you. And there are many people at other Lutheran churches in the area that can make that happen. The problem is we're so inwardly focused that it's about the next best thing in my own life. I'm not even saying give something up. What I'm saying is drop the veneer. Uh, let me go back here, and then I'll come to you, okay? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You all send your kids to District 200. <laughs> no, I, I, completely, I completely understand. And, and partly it's schools are like parishes. Everyone is different. And you may have sort of a set standard for how a school should look, just like you should for a church. That doesn't mean it's going to look like that. So, and things change very quickly. A school can be bad one year and very good the next year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. We're all, ooh, we're over. Uh, but go ahead anyways. No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> it's your husband saying, where are you? <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm And I think that's partly, I think that's partly why sort of the economic crisis has been so devastating because suddenly people really don't have control, um, in a very different way than they never have before, that they've never experienced before, because for most people control is, if you have the money, you're in control, <laughs> but um, the Lord can sort that out too. Okay, so chaos to peace, how does it happen? The river whose streams make glad the city of God, baptism. 
and all the other rivers you see, the river in Christ's side, when Jesus says, from me flows streams of living water, John 4, all those things are pointing you back to the fact that the one who dwells in Israel, Emmanuel, Jesus, that is the place of peace, being in contact with his flesh and all as well. That's it. Okay? Anything else before we go? I know we're over time. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and also that the stream doesn't get turned into chaos. Everything else does, and then there's this stream. You're like, no, I completely agree. It is safe. It is safe. It's um, it's the safety of the man of Genesis or of, of Psalm one. He's the person who lives. I mean, great point. Thank you. Uh, next week, what do you want to do? Any psalms? Anybody okay? Everybody okay? I think we'll do, why don't we look at Psalm, since we promised you, let's look at Psalm 23 next week, um, and then we'll go from there. If you've got some, bring them. If you've got ones that you want to look at, even on the fly, or give us, the, give us those in advance, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.